All right. Well, good morning. Glad that we uh, have a good group today. Uh, thankful that uh, we have our Zoom class going on and we have our Facebook Live class stream going on uh, simultaneously. And thankful for everyone who is joining us today. I hope and pray that you are having a good day and pray that this study will be of benefit to you. We are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we will be in the book of Hebrews till the end of, of May. <clears throat> and as we as we go through the book of Hebrews, we're in chapter nine, and we're gonna survey two major sections of this of this book. And one of the things that we will look at is uh, the importance of uh, the death of Jesus from the point of view of of the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, in the sense that the argument really is based on the 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 permanency, the foreverness of the priesthood of Jesus. Um, it is based off the quality of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it also is based off various oaths in Scripture, promises, prophecies. So there was this looking forward to a, a transition away from the law of Moses and the system of Moses, that is to say the Levitical system, uh, and, and some of that is, is implanted later on. It's not found necessarily in the actual uh, book of, of Deuteronomy or Leviticus, uh, even though there are some places where Moses anticipates uh, a coming prophet. And you see that like in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet will arise from among you. And in the Gospel of John, this becomes the sort of the questioning that John is asked, are you the prophet? And that questioning is a reference back to Moses's words, a prophet will arise from among you. And they were trying to um, sort of triangulate uh, and understand the ministry of, of John the Baptist. So with that being said, one of the things we've seen already in the book of Hebrews is the use of the Psalms as uh, reflections and prophetic reflections at that about what God has promised David and what God has promised Israel and what he hints at that will um, be fulfilled in a fuller sense in the Christ or the, the son of David, the descendant of David. You know, much of the Psalms, of course, that are Davidic, that is to say, they say of David, um, they they reflect different crises that Jesus himself will experience likewise, but now uh, they are in their full package, in their totality. For example, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 will come up in the book of Hebrews uh, in, in, in an expression of jubilant joy and celebration, uh, congregational worship. I will you know, sing your praises, among my brothers, and this is um, this is a reference back to the deliverance uh, that God was with 
the suffering servant of Psalm 22, David, or the Christ, Jesus. But now as we get into chapter 9, uh, we've seen the promise of a new covenant from Jeremiah 31. A reference in chapter 8, beginning in verse 8, that days are coming. And, and the point of the writer here is to say that that promise has materialized today. That is what we are experiencing as Christians uh, today. And I'm using today in quotes because obviously the, the, the work of Christ had been going on already for quite some time before the, the writer to the Hebrews put these words down. But the, the general idea is this is now the era where the new covenant has come into full view and we are now beneficiaries and we are now participants in the new covenant. And so to walk backwards is to undo a prophecy from Jeremiah, a celebrated prophet in Israel. And it would also um, make it so that uh, they're undoing the promises of God or rejecting them uh, making them powerless, essentially, by returning to the system that they've grown up with, the Levitical system at the temple in Jerusalem. So as you as we we think about the the you know the the world of of this argument, the conceptual world here, I want to just remind us again or try to get us to think again about what it means to have gone from a Levitical system based on the tabernacle, based on the sacrificial system found in the book of Leviticus, and then uh, all of a sudden your transactional knowledge, right? Your transactional knowledge. I get this animal. We have it prepped and sacrificed. My sins are atoned for. Uh, I am ceremonially pure. I am holy. I am set apart. And we'll start this over tomorrow. You know, um, I know my sins are taken care of. From that vantage point, we, we as Christians have a very, very limited perspective on that. Uh, you might think of your daily prayer as the way that you ask God for forgiveness. You might think of, you know, prayers throughout the day when you need forgiveness for something you, you didn't realize you, that was wrong and you did it anyways, or something you didn't do and you feel bad because you should have done something. You know, that is the closest that we, we get in terms of a daily uh you know, interaction with God, hoping that he will forgive us. And, and I have to say that the conceptually, the lineup of, you know, the issue of this daily sacrifices when practiced in its, you know, full extent, um, was a sense of assurity, you know, that comfort that God forgave you, that God has forgiven you. Uh, then you have this, you know, you don't have this, I am forgiven, I'm not forgiven, I, you know, I'm going to meet God's wrath, I'm not going to, you know, and the same is true with Christians today. In 1 John, you have, you know, um, verse 8, chapter 1, 
that if I walk in the light as he is in the light, or excuse me, verse 9, you know, um, well, that whole, the whole section there, excuse me, for my mind is going right now. Uh, but in that first chapter you have is, if I walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And so we, when we think about that, you know, Christians should never be fearful that we're once saved, always in doubt. Uh, that'll be the subject of the next class. So, so as we, we look forward to that, it's based on the forever priesthood of Jesus, and it's based on the forever sacrifice of Jesus, the lasting effect of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Our study book uh, poses the question about, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't there be another way? And, and I think, while that's a good question, uh, I, th I think um, I want to go a different direction than that. Um, but I do want to at least uh, acknowledge a few points from our study guide. Um, <clears throat> yes, Jesus could have, uh, Jesus went through the, the whole ordeal, the plan of God, um, completely uh, by choice. He participated in the work of God. You know, there are passages you know, uh, like in John chapter 12, verse 27, you know, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. In other words, there was there is a sense in which Jesus did acknowledge that uh, if there was another way, then let there be another way, but there is no other way and that's why I came. And, and perhaps we get a sense of the, the, um, the internal monologue of, you know, in, in a very paradoxical, you know, very almost odd sense of here's God in the flesh, knowing that something has to be done a certain way, but asking for another way out. Um, you know, not an out so that the will of God isn't, you know, the justice of God isn't met, but, or the plan of redemption isn't met, but instead that, you know, why does it have to go through? Why is it, why must it go through the cross? And I think that's a, that's a safe and good question, but I don't know that that's exactly what chapter nine is about of Hebrews. Um, what it seems to be about is the continuation of building on the argument that we have a better priesthood uh, and that we have, uh, because of that, a better promise. Uh, we have... Also, um, you know, the language of, of a, a sacrifice that puts to shame, so to speak, as we might say today, uh, the sacrificial system of the past. And so as we, we jump toward verses 11 to 17 and then 24 uh, to 28, I, I want to bring up uh, an argument from the first 10 verses. And I have this handy dandy chart behind me. Uh, for you on Facebook Live, it is reversed, so I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but uh, for you on Zoom, you can see it. And I think either way it goes, you'll be able to, to understand what I'm saying. Uh, let me stand up here for a moment. So 
One of the arguments in chapter uh, 9, verses 1 to 10, is, is based on the, the concept of the earthly tent or tabernacle uh, or the, the temple versus the heavenly one. And that uh, dueling, dualism of heaven and earth, right, uh, is fundamental to the argument of the book of Hebrews. And it is a constant contrast that there was nothing morally or systematically wrong with the system of the Levites in concept. It was the system God used. It is a holy system. It is a system of wisdom. Instead, the argument is it was never intended to be permanent, and it could not be because sanctification, holiness, redemption, forgiveness, those are spiritual concepts, and they require a spiritual setting to fully deal with it. And so the argument, if, if you uh, look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, uh, goes on and, and talks about how uh, this earthly setting had requirements and regulations. And we've already, he's already, uh, the writer has already dealt with that. Um, but in this new covenant, uh, things fundamentally have to change. Uh, and the preparations that go into this earthly, uh, earthbound system uh, really do not hold up to the same strength and, and completeness as what Jesus has done. And, and as an analogy, or as the writer will say, symbolically, the Holy Spirit is saying to us that as in the earthly system, the tabernacle, and here is my makeshift uh, tabernacle profile here, uh, you have the, the holy place, and then the next room over was the most holy place. Now, the, the holy place in the tabernacle had uh, various elements of, you know, um, things that you might expect from someone who lived in a tent. Like there was a table with bread on it. There was candles with lights on it. Uh, there was, you know, variety of furniture in there to reflect that God lives there. It's his home. Uh, but there is also uh, a curtain and behind the curtain is a room called the most holy place. And that place is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It is where Aaron's rod that budded would be placed. The commandments were in there. Uh, and, and this was the place where the high priest alone, not the Levites, the Levites could enter into the holy place to do the, the, the daily service. But the most holy place could only be accessed limitedly by the high priest and once a year. You know, there were some exceptions, you know, about like when you would build, have to move the, the tabernacle and then reset it up and, and all that and they prepared it. But, but in terms of atonement and in terms of forgiveness, the most holy place, you had limited access to the high priest you could only go in there once a year. And it was there that you as high priest would walk in with the blood of the sacrificed animal on behalf of yourself and the nation for all the sins of the people that year. On the day of, of, of atonement called, or the Hebrew Yom Kippur. So, so as you think about the earthly system, you had to pass from the outside into the holy place, and then you had to cross the curtain to enter into the most holy place. 
So this was an exclusive, exclusive place. It would, it, today we might think of the VIP place of the VIP place, right? And, and so this is the system. Now, what Jesus does is, is not only demonstrate that this, is, this earthly tent is not enough, this system on earth is not enough because it, is, it has limitations. Uh, what, the, what Jesus does is, is show that. But the argument in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 to 10 goes on and says, yes, and as a symbol, the Holy Spirit is showing us that you had to cross from the earthly temple or the earthly tent to the new tent, the heavenly tent. Or the old covenant, you had to cross over to the new covenant. If you are in the holy place, right? If you're in the heavenly temple, going backwards is a, you are, you know, kind of downgrading your access to God. The same is true in, in, in the way I'm trying to explain it here, is if you went backwards from the heavenly temple where Jesus is, which is permanent, which is forever, a permanent access, uh, you are reverting backwards. You are, you are losing intimate access to God. And, and it becomes an important point, especially with the covenants, because the, the first covenant leads you to the new covenant. And the new covenant is where we want to be. So maybe that was helpful. Um, and hopefully, um, at least the image of it might be of use to you. Um, <clears throat> you can find pictures of the, the structure of uh, the, um, the, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting anywhere in Bible dictionaries or online. But, but if you think about it, from that vantage point, that's part of the, the big picture here, verses 11 uh, and onward. And when you read then what we'll read now, the text of our study, let's uh, get into that. Okay, so <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 11 to 17. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the holy, most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, key phrase in Hebrews, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all, 
while the testator lives. And as we, we skip a little bit um, to get to verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy place, places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. There's our argument. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. All right, so a lot of, this is perhaps one of the most dense uh, passages in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot, a lot of dense places in Hebrews. Uh, and, and because of that, it's sometimes uh, a world unto its own when people are reading the New Testament. Um, sometimes we don't just think, oh, let's read the book of Hebrews. Uh, we want to read, you know, the stories of Jesus, which are beautiful and important for us. But the book of Hebrews is, it, it is a complex interwoven argument. And if we, we miss out on some of the key, key issues, we might miss out on a lot. So when thinking about uh, our first section today um, of a better sacrifice, verses 11 to 14, um, remember, again, the argument. Verses 11 to 14 have for us a, a simple argument, if I can summarize it in a simple way, uh, which is to say um, that the heavenly tent where Jesus is. It, is. it is a once and for all time done thing. I, that doesn't even sound like good English. Uh, it doesn't even sound like okay English. But the issue here is it, well, his actions in the tent in heaven, in the most holy place, the true most holy place, the true VIP of VIP rooms. It has been done once and its lasting effect is eternal redemption, verse 12. So because of his, his own foreverness, remember, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, right? The, 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 the promise from Psalm 95 excuse me, 100. Um, and uh, when you think about that, you think about that promise of an oath by God in Psalm uh, 110, excuse me, 110, um, you begin to realize that, that Jesus then is, when we compound the issues here, he is eternal. His priesthood, his kingship is eternal. Therefore, his sacrifice is eternal. And where does that happen? In the eternal places. Where is the eternal place? It is in the heavenly realm where God is. And that is the true, true tabernacle. And I, I'd probably argue that, um, that the writer to the Hebrews is really image uh, confined because he is relating 
this whole plan of salvation here or the scheme of redemption, eternal redemption and and the basis of the sacrificial system, which really was to atone for sin and sanctify God's people and and keep the bond together. Um, that was the language they knew. And, and if, and I think that really tailors the kind of language he had to use. It, it forces his hand. And, and, um, and yet there is so much promise in the text, in the scriptures of, of, you know, these themes like the eternal covenant, the eternal oath, the eternal priesthood, those things. And now we get into, uh, this passage here that the blood of bulls and goats, if that was, if you value that, if you value, verse 13, the power of those sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more should you appreciate then the power and the permanency of the blood of Christ? So he goes from the temporary continuous stream of sacrifices, a temporary continuous stream of priests and high priests, and says all of that has been done through the work of Christ. You don't have to worry about those concerns because they've been handled and solved in God's wisdom. And and therefore the question, the rhetorical question is, if that was efficacious, if that was powerful for the purifying of the flesh, what about the blood of Jesus? What about the blood of the eternal Son of God? What about that? And at this point, the argument should be, oh, that's very powerful. Um, it should be able to cleanse me completely, completely. Um, <clears throat> we then get into verses 15 to 17. And the argument here of a better covenant truly is a continuation of the promise of you know, the the um, Jeremiah New Covenant of Jeremiah 31. And there is some overlap with the eternal nature of the priesthood of Jesus. Uh, throughout this text, you'll see the phrases eternal redemption, uh, verse 12, uh, eternal spirit, verse 14, uh, eternal inheritance here, verse 15. And again, while it's not an exact quotation from you know Psalm 110 it is in keeping with the the argument that uh you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and and that is uh, what makes him as a son he has been made perfect forever chapter 7 uh verse uh, 28 and, and so this carryover, now blending eternalness, new covenant in Jesus, uh, continues to say then, if, and if this is the case, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. He mediates. He's the go-between. If there is a new covenant and there is a new priest and there is a new priest uh, king, um, then He's the one, is the go, he's the go-between. A king was always a go-between. A king was always a mediator. David was always a mediator between God and Israel. 
Solomon was always a mediator between God. Saul was always a mediator between God and Israel. That's why when Saul would be so rebellious, it cost him his entire throne and the dynasty that followed. And the same is true throughout. That's why the leadership of a king was so vitally important, not because he was a king God, but because he represented God. He mediated. And then you have, of course, the priesthood. The priesthood always, again, was an office of mediation. So when you have those two systems of mediating, of going between God and man, Combined into one, you have a perfect mediator. On the sacrificial side, on the leadership side, and then you combined this eternal king priest into a human, you know, God in the flesh. It, it begins to fill out uh, all the nooks and crannies that we might have questions about in terms of completeness. So, of course, then, he is the mediator of this new covenant. And the way this was accomplished was through death. So, while uh, we can ask, why couldn't there be another way? And, and I think this is the place where you can ask that question. And the answer is, uh, later on in explanation, verse 17, that the New Testament Though the term together here is not set. Verse 17, a testament is enforced after men are dead, but the language of newness is found throughout a new covenant. At this point, testament is used as a synonym for covenant. And thus we begin to find the language of our own faith, New Testament. We could have been just talking about new covenant. I am a new covenant Christian. But we often talk about I am a New Testament Christian. And although that phrase at this point doesn't come together, you get phrases like the first covenant, verse, verse 15. Uh, if you look here in the text, verse 15, the first covenant. And then you get later on a testament. A testament doesn't come in place until the testator dies. And so the death of Jesus then triggers the beginning of the new covenant. And so because of the importance of the death of Jesus, that plays a role in bringing forth a covenant, um, it, it is essential that he dies. Now, let's think about that for a moment. And this is reading in between the lines here and trying to make some sense of some other things. Um, I'd argue and will argue that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is God, the Godhead. We call it, often call it the Trinity, though that word is not found in the New Testament anywhere. And yet the divinity of the Father, the, the divinity of the Son, and the divinity of the Holy Spirit is, is um, never denied in Scripture. And in fact, it is affirmed in Scripture. And our need for that triune understanding of God is, is essential to uh, biblical interpretation. Um, whatever the Father does, the Son agrees to. Whatever the Spirit does... It is in cooperation with the Father and the Son. Uh, there is unity. 
Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Oneness, purpose, identity, a single eternal shared experience, if I can use that language. Human language really fails here to talk about the nature and essence of God. But we can at least point those, we can see those, those points. Now, this is what I want to point out here. Jesus functioning on earth as the son of God and often is called the heir of God, the heir of the promises, the full heir, right? The eternal one. And in his death then, is it possible that in his death, he dies on behalf of the father's will and plan? Therefore, when he dies in the flesh as the Israelite, par excellence, the king, the king priest, all of these things come together. Um, therefore, the testament of God, of the new covenant, is now in place. And I think that's something we don't flesh out a lot of, and, and I'm doing my best here to try to flesh that out here, just been thinking about that. That what, Why does the death of Jesus versus any other Hebrew that dies, why is that so significant? The text doesn't come out and tell us, but reading between the connections, I think that that's, there's a solid argument uh, that might need to be fleshed out a little bit more. But, but his death is what triggers a new covenant. Therefore, he is a covenant owner, but he's also the covenant owner of the past covenant. That shows you, again, a, a underlying argument for the divinity of Jesus, because the old covenant or the covenant of Moses was the covenant of Jesus, too. It was his. He gave it to Moses. So uh, as he dies, that covenant and the promises that come with a new covenant become come into play. So he had to die, not just to offer a better sacrifice, not to just better offer, not just to offer a better system of intimacy with God, but also to bring forth this new covenant. And so our last section here. Uh, verses 24 to 28, we jump, you know, quite a bit here, uh, but I think for good reason. Um, there, there's just, it's a really dense section of scripture. Um, but then you get into um, more discussion about, um, you know, the shadows and things of that nature. And as we read again, that Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Here's my argument again. Um, when you when you realize that Christ has not entered into um, a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into the heaven, but into heaven itself, here it is, into the most the true holy place, right? Um, we begin to see this how this argument is being actually made. Um, it is an argument of lesser to greater. It is an argument from shadow uh, or something that implied that there's something greater than itself, something that is earthly and therefore inferior, um, moving forward to the eternal heavenly one. Christ has not, entered, has not entered the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself. What is he doing? Now, to appear in the presence of God 
for us. So now going back to the tabernacle imagery, that's what the high priest did as, as his function. The imagery of presenting yourself, not just at you know the, the Ark of the Covenant, but you went into the Ark of the Covenant to bring forth that blood and sprinkle it on the lid of the mercy seat. That was the lid, excuse me, the mercy seat was the lid of the tabernacle, um, uh, the Ark of the, of the Tabernacle. And when you did that, you would stand in the presence of God. So, you know, your, your knowledge of Leviticus is massively important here. Uh, a book that is equally, you know, sometimes viewed with, with a great challenge of why should I read this? Um, but here, it's all about intimacy. See, the tabernacle is all about an intimate relationship with God. But in the system as it was framed, it had limits. Jesus offers us intimacy, communion with God without those limits. And it is something we don't have to wait for a sacrifice to know that our sins are forgiven as his people. If you're outside of the, the body of Christ, that's a different story. But you don't have to wait. Those things are, are done. You know, forgiveness and redemption are, are done already. You just need now to gain the access to what Jesus has done. And the fear of the writer here is that these Jews, these Hebrews are walking away. These Christian Hebrews are walking away from a better plan and a better system um, that they have been accustomed to and dependent on and found their value and identity in. And they're struggling to transition to the new, new system and the identity that comes with that. And so, uh, finally, just a, a few more quick points and our class will be done. When you, when you then think about how uh, the impact here, the writer goes into, he shoots uh, forward toward this concept of death because death is really at play here as a major figure in, in, in salvation, redemption, etc., um, verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world if he had a if he went after the Levitical system or or did what he does now in heaven on earth. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the sacrifice of himself has put away sin, pushed it aside, it has dealt with it, no longer. Um, the the overall end time effect of sin, um, that is what's going on here. That has been dealt with. A similar, maybe clearer passage would be like Romans 5.12 and, and Romans 5, um, I think verse 16 or so, talking about the effects of, of Jesus. Uh, Whereas one man sinned, so all men die. And now Jesus with the promise and blessing with him, all men live. Um, but notice verse 27, 28 as we close. It says here, it is appointed for men to die once. But after this, the judgment. Now, this is going to be a parallel argument. We understand when people die, then there's judgment for them. Their, their life works will be balanced and weighed by 
the justice of God. In a similar vein, so Christ died once or was offered once to bear the sins of many. So the judgment that people will experience after they die, that is what Jesus takes on himself, it seems. It seems that that is the case here. He's bearing the sin of many. In other words, he will carry the burden and he will carry the, the, the net effect of the consequence there and, what, and, and so that we don't have to. That's the, that seems to be the, the imagery here and the argument. And, and I want to be, I don't want to push it too far where, you know, this argument, this concept might lead to us thinking that Jesus is permanently tainted with our sin. That's nowhere taught in scripture either. And so he does this, he bears our sins so that, and that's Isaiah 53 language. Um, he bears our sins so that when he appears for a second time, Apart from sin, he comes for salvation. And so this is where we can really appreciate the concept of, this, of the second coming of Christ. Out of nowhere, like we just turn a corner and all of a sudden we're talking about the second coming of Christ. And, and yet you would think that maybe this, is seem, this does not seem very connected, but it is very connected because... When you realize that death, the, you know, the sort of figure that looms over existence is, is now been dealt with, then what else is there for a full intimacy with God? And that is what salvation is about. Being preserved eternally for an intimate, eternal relationship with God. I hope that encourages you, encourages me. It also reminds me that uh, this is yet to come. And it's not something that's happened in the past. His second coming has not happened in the past. His second coming has not happened uh, or been predicted by would-be, you know, uh, end-day prophets. Instead, it, it, it will come when full salvation is here. All right. Thank you so much for being with us here on our Bible class. Uh, thank you for joining us 